Welcome back. This is Dr. Ed Taubman with Only My Wellness. This is our podcast number four. I'm pleased to have a special guest, Dr. William P. McGuire III, uh, who is the medical director of the Gynecological Cancer Outreach Center at Inova Health Systems. Welcome, Bill. Nice to be here, Ed. And I'm so pleased to have you, and I, I will say on a personal level, um, we first met about eight years ago uh, when my wife Nancy uh, suddenly was discovered to have ovarian cancer. And we really didn't know which way to turn, and it was recommended to seek you out. And uh, we really, uh, uh, your counsel that you gave us was terrific. And on a personal level, uh, we really uh, enjoyed meeting with you. And we've subsequently been on panels together. And you're just a great guy, so thank you for being here. Well, I'm delighted to be here and even more delighted to, uh, to know that Nancy is doing well and, uh, and is uh, free of uh, cancer. Yes, she most absolutely is. Uh, thank you so much. So tell us a little bit about yourself and um, how you uh, got to be where you are now and what is it that you're doing these days, Bill? Well, I actually trained as a uh, internist and then uh, medical oncologist. Did my training at the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, and during that training program, I saw a uh, fairly large number of patients that happened to have ovarian cancer because that was actually one of the diseases that was being studied at that point in time at the National Cancer Institute, and I kind of moved around for a number of years at the National Cancer Institute, and at one point was asked to be the the government, if you will, representative for the gynecologic oncology group, which was and really still is the only uh, nationally funded group that, that specifically studies female pelvic cancer, and so uh, availed myself of I think most of the knowledge dealing with gynecologic oncology at that point in time, this was back in the 70s, uh, when the field of gynecologic oncology was really a new subspecialty within the field of obstetrics and gynecology, and became um, extraordinarily interested in uh, all of the female pelvic cancers. And so as uh, I... Uh, moved uh, further into the field of medical oncology, decided at one point uh, to limit my practice to uh, treating uh, just the female pelvic cancer. So at least I would say for the last 15 or maybe closer to 20 years, I have, for all intents and purposes, limited my practice of medical oncology to those female pelvic cancers, which uh, is a little bit unusual. Most medical oncologists kind of treat everything that walks through the door, and I would just happen to be lucky enough to be in a, in a position where I could do that. And I've heard you uh, talk about the fact that you happened to be around when Taxel uh, came uh, on the scene. And what was that like to, to uh, be in practice and see a new drug come on that uh, suddenly was having a, um, an impact on a disease for which there really hadn't been any great treatment for? Uh, well, it was pretty fascinating. I mean, prior to uh, Taxol uh, being available, it was really platinum and, uh, and the classic alkylating agents like cytoxin were the only drugs that, that really had any significant activity. And I happened to be lucky enough to 
and I land uh, at one point in my career at Johns Hopkins when they had uh, a phase one program, which is where drugs that are absolutely brand new and in first human usage were being utilized. And during the course of that phase one study, I happened to have a single patient that came to see me with ovarian cancer who really had exhausted pretty much all of her options in terms of therapy. And uh, I offered her Taxol. She had a very, very, very dramatic response to uh, to Taxol. And so for the next so five or six years, we uh, moved Taxol out of uh, the realm of, you know, end of the line into uh, frontline therapy. And uh, so even today, uh, Taxol and platinum, specifically carboplatin, still, uh, I guess it would be fair to say, unfortunately, remains the standard of care. I would like to say that there have been a huge number of new drugs since then that have come along, but there, uh, uh, there haven't been, there's haven't been, at least in terms of the initial treatment. There are lots and lots of drugs that are active in the treatment of ovarian cancer, but when those drugs are moved into the initial treatment of ovarian cancer, they just haven't panned out in terms of uh, improving the cure rate. Right, and you know, it's kind of sobering to me because I started with my wife's, um, uh, with Nancy's situation, uh, closely following this field, and it's been eight years now, and um, one would have hoped, I guess, uh, that we would have uh, made uh, more progress uh, in that period of time. Um, and I, I did read a sobering uh, article in the, I believe, the Journal of Gynecological Oncology, which essentially said, we don't really understand what the biology or what causes ovarian cancer, how it develops, what makes it progress, why some women uh, respond to treatment or not. We just don't really understand the basic science of it. And um, I guess that makes it difficult for the researchers to come up with a home run, or, or we just have to hope we get lucky like we did with Taxol. What do you think? Well, I think there's uh, a lot of truth to that we do not understand the uh, process of how ovarian cancer is initiated. Uh, as the Human Genome Project has been completed, which is less than 10 years now, uh, and we can actually explore uh, genes in cancer. Uh, there are many, many tumors in which we have found what are called activating mutations. So you can find a, a specific mutation that, at least in a subset of patients with a specific type of tumor, uh, lead to the, uh, at least in part, to the genesis of that malignancy. I think the, the most classic recent example is the finding of uh, HER2 new uh, gene or the gene that produces the HER2 uh, compound, which uh, uh, was found uh, in about 25% of breast cancers, and that gene was discovered because there were uh, some patients that appeared to have very, very early breast cancer but who had very poor outcomes. And when Dr. Dennis Lehman at the University of California, Los Angeles, began to look at what was it about those patients that led to their poor outcome? He discovered what we now call HER2-NU, and of course the drug Herceptin was developed, which basically blocks that uh, transmembrane signal. It's a signal into the cell that, uh, that tells the cell to grow, uh, and that has revolutionized uh, the 
treatment and probably the cure rate of a uh, about 25% of patients with breast cancer. Now, uh, it's not that we haven't looked for a similar activating uh, gene mutation in ovarian cancer. We certainly have. And to date, uh, there is not one that, mm. that has really been discovered. And so until such time as uh, such a, an activating gene is found, um, I, I think it is sobering to, to say that, yes, there are lots of new drugs since Taxol, uh, some of which are on the market, uh, gemcitabine, topotecan, and doxel, to name three. Uh, but when those drugs were specifically moved out of treating recurrent ovarian cancer into the frontline setting, it really did not it didn't make a difference in terms of outcomes. So we really need the next generation of young research-minded people uh, to come up with some answers. Uh, speaking of which, is your son uh, in the uh, field of medicine these days? He is, actually. I appreciate your asking. He is a sophomore medical student uh, at Tulane University. He's Pretty much, I think, at this point in time, although he's just getting ready to start clinical medicine, I think he's pretty set on uh, practicing in the field of internal medicine as opposed to obstetrics or pediatrics or, uh, uh, or a surgical field. But what uh, subspecialty area in internal medicine he ends up in or whether he just uh, decides to do general internal medicine will remain to be seen. Okay, well, one of these days I'm going to need somebody to uh, help me out in my general internal medicine practice, if you can pass that on to him. Okay. So, uh, what has, uh, what would you say are the high points in the last couple of years? Any any updates that uh, you can uh, give to our listeners about uh, ovarian cancer that they uh, might uh, wish to know about that you could share with them? Well, I think I think clearly one one high point has been the uh, the drug Avastin or Bevacizumab, which is uh, a drug that is not a cytotoxic drug uh, like Taxol and Platinum in that it doesn't kill cells by a direct uh, effect on the cancer cell, but kill cells through a still relatively poorly understand mechanism of altering. Uh, the blood supply uh, to the tumor cell, and that's still not uh, well understood. But what has become very clear is that uh, that drug, uh, Avastin, even as a single agent, is an, uh, a very active drug in, again, some 20 to 25 percent of patients with ovarian cancer. The nice thing about the drug is that uh, it does not have the typical side effects that you see with most chemotherapeutic agents. It doesn't cause hair loss. It doesn't cause any effect on the blood counts. It doesn't cause nausea and vomiting. It has some unusual side effects, a little bit of high blood pressure, which can usually be controlled, a very low risk of a bowel perforation, which is obviously a serious side effect, and uh, loss of uh, some protein in the urine, which really doesn't have a clinical impact on most patients. And it doesn't have a cumulative toxicity, meaning that in that 20 or 25% of patients who respond to the drug, uh, that you can continue to give the drug for long periods of time and not run into um, uh, side effects that, that tend to pile up. And so that's been an active drug in treating recurrent ovarian cancer, but by the same token, I think everybody's hope was 
when this drug got moved into the initial treatment of ovarian cancer that it would improve the cure rate and there have now been two large studies, one done in this country and one done in, uh, in Western Europe, uh, that moved the drug into the frontline treatment in, in conjunction with Taxol and Carboplatin. And even though it did improve the length of time the patient was in remission, it did not uh, change the overall survival. And, and part of that may, may simply be uh, due to the fact that the patients in those two large studies that uh, did not get the drug initially ended up getting the drug later on when their tumor came back, and mm -hmm. so that kind of blurred the, the survival differences. Sure, and I know there was some fear, uh, perhaps a little controversy, as to whether insurance companies were going to pay for Avastin, which is fairly expensive, um, uh, in uh, the case of women who had ovarian cancer. Uh, has that been resolved? Well, certainly the, uh, the company that makes uh, Avastin Genentech has not uh, asked for FDA approval, at least yet, for uh, that drug in the, uh, either the initial treatment or, or subsequent treatment of patients who have recurrent ovarian cancer. I think uh, in large part because of the fact that the FDA has pretty stringent rules saying that you must have a uh, survival differential before they will approve the drug. But uh, by the same token, I think that most insurance companies, um, uh, most is the operational word, is not all insurance companies have uh, agreed to uh, fund that drug because of its uh, very clear activity, not necessarily fund the drug as part of the initial treatment, mm -hmm. but certainly fund the drug in that uh, subset of patients who uh, whose tumor comes back. One of the one of the real problems, uh, however, is that we do not yet know uh, which patients there there is yet no test that we can run to pick out the patients who will or who will not respond. You simply have to give the drug and find out. Uh, and it would certainly be helpful if we could uh, determine a test, a blood test or something, or find a gene in the tumor that predicted for those patients who would and would not respond to the drug so that we did not have to uh, expose all patients to the potential toxicities of the drug and, the, and their insurance companies or the patient to the the cost of the drug. We which don't have which is test really test. the whole issue, as I see it, with nowadays with with um, giving all sorts of chemotherapies. We 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 know some people will respond, but it's really hard by looking at them or examining them, uh, or having the pathologist give their report as to who will respond to which drug. Do you see anything coming over the horizon that looks promising uh, in helping uh, clinicians such as yourself? Uh, know which is the right drug for the right person? Well, there there are a lot of, um, of tests that have been promulgated as helping the clinician to decide some of those tests, such as the old Oncotec assay, which uh, has since uh, uh, disappeared because it really was not predictive in terms of picking out the drug. It was reasonably, predict, reasonably a good predictor for picking what drugs a patient would not respond to. Uh, more recently, the precision therapeutics 
uh, assay, which uh, has to take the fresh tissue and culture, culture it in a liquid tissue culture medium and then expose it to uh, various concentrations of various drugs. And I understand there will be a paper presented at the meeting of the Society of Gynecologic Oncologists this coming week, so I'm looking forward to hearing, that may give us some further insight into whether or not that test uh, is really going to show clinical utility, by clinical utility meaning helping the clinician decide I should use drug A instead of drug B. And then I would say the most recent thing on the horizon is the so-called Keras assay, which does not require live tissue, which makes it a little bit easier. They can actually use paraffin-embedded tissue to actually look at uh, some of the genes in a specific patient's tumor. Uh, but as I've said before, not having there is no known activating mutation, so the best that test can do is uh, we is 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 give you at least some hints uh, when you've got a, you know a shelf with 12 drugs on it. And you could use any of those 12 in treating particularly recurrent ovarian cancer. Uh, which ones are the most likely to to have an effect? And even that assay has not yet been fully vetted in terms of 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 its predictability. So uh, we've got. We've got a long, long way to go, but by the same token, it's only been uh, uh, a decade that, we, that we've that we really had the human genome uh, project completed and that we can uh, begin to, to look at the uh, internal genetics of ovarian cancer. And so I'm hopeful anyway that uh, as, as we spend uh, more time and energy looking into this, that at some point we're going to find... Uh, uh, some better way of, of selecting drugs. We're just not there yet. Yeah, we're not there yet, but hopefully uh, we'll get there sooner than later. So uh, any other um, changes in, um, or suggestions you would have for patients, maybe somebody with newly diagnosed ovarian cancer that you might want to share with them that um, is um, uh, of benefit uh, that we've come to realize within the past couple of years or so? Well, I think that there was uh, uh, a, an important study from uh, Europe uh, that has been uh, partially embraced in the U.S., but maybe not as uh, fully embraced as I think it should be, which was a study that was uh, performed uh, in a group of patients with uh, advanced ovarian cancer in which half of the patients had uh, aggressive surgery up front. Uh, the other half of the patients had a diagnosis made uh, by uh, a biopsy or by finding uh, uh, fluid that contained cells in it that uh, were consistent with ovarian cancer and a high CA125 who got some chemotherapy uh, first and then went on to have uh, the surgical procedure and then some additional chemotherapy later on that really showed, I think, two things. One, that you can, in fact, give chemotherapy uh, to a patient with advanced ovarian cancer, get them through that initial uh, three rounds of chemotherapy uh, and, and still do surgery. And point, in fact, is that the complications from the surgical procedure were statistically less severe than if uh, you did the major surgical procedure up front. And the second thing was that it did not appear to impact 
the overall survival. So the patients who got uh, what we call neoadjuvant chemotherapy, so some chemotherapy up front, followed by surgery, followed by more chemotherapy, had survival that was equivalent to doing uh, the surgery up front uh, followed by chemotherapy. And this is, I think, particularly pertinent for some uh, group of patients who uh, may be in a nutritionally very, very bad situation when their ovarian cancer is discovered. They've been vomiting for uh, days or weeks. Uh, they've lost a lot of weight. Uh, and uh, those patients we know are more prone to have uh, post-operative complications, and that is certainly the group of patients uh, that uh, very clearly should uh, at least consider the uh, the neoadjuvant thera- therapeutic yeah. approach. And, and that makes sense, and we've seen that in other cancers like uh, large breast or advanced breast cancers, uh, where uh, rather than having surgery right away, uh, the patients uh, have chemotherapy, which nowadays. Uh, you know, is generally fairly well tolerated for most people uh, as compared to, you know, a, a couple of decades ago. Uh, they do relatively well with that. It shrinks the tumor, then it makes the job for the surgeon easier uh, right. as opposed to taking somebody who's in kind of dire straits and put them through a big, long, op- complicated operation and expect them to bounce back. And, right. Uh, so that does make sense, hopefully. That will be helpful. Speaking of nutrition, this comes up from time to time, uh, and I do know anecdotally of a couple of cases where patients have uh, really seemingly reached the end of the line or advanced some of the standard chemotherapies uh, for ovarian cancer and then have sought out uh, a nutritional approach, vitamin therapy, et cetera. And, um, of course, medically, we tend to think askance of that, maybe because we don't understand it that much. But um, I I have heard of a case or two where people seem to have responded both subjectively and objectively. What do you think about that? Well, I think that certainly when people are nutritionally deprived and uh, you can fix the nutritional deprivation, uh, clearly the patients feel better, uh, they look better, uh, whether or not uh, it improves the survival of the patient, I think, uh, remains to be seen. I don't think that there uh, have yet been any good studies. I mean, we now that we we certainly know that you can do uh, parental alimentation, for example, and feed people intravenously. It may, in fact, uh, prolong the uh, time that the patient that's kind of end of the line has here on Earth. Uh, but I, I think we all ask the question, to what end and, and, and at what cost? It, it certainly, uh, I don't think there are any data out there that say that, uh, that, it's, uh, that it's curative at all. Sure. Well, um, maybe that will, uh, more research in that realm will come out. In fact, uh, we're going to do a podcast uh, coming up soon with Rick Weisinger, who um, is, uh, has written books that are required reading for medical students on nutrition and uh, he definitely feels that uh, certain vitamins and changes in diet can be uh, helpful to manage this. So we'll have to hear what he has to say. Well, this has been very enlightening, and I am so excited to uh, have you on one of my podcasts. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
been my pleasure, Ed, and uh, say and give my best to uh, Nancy, please. Sure, I will. And Bill, if uh, are you seeing uh, patients at uh, ANOVA? You really haven't said much about what you're doing at ANOVA. Oh, yes, I am. I'm seeing patients, uh, uh, but again, uh, the limited to patients with uh, female pelvic cancer, so ovarian cancer, uterine cancer, cervix cancer, and uh, certainly happy to... Uh, uh, see uh, any, any patient that uh, is in need of chemotherapy for those malignancies. And there also are uh, six very, very highly qualified uh, GYN oncologists in, in the practice that I'm in. And so uh, uh, we certainly have the surgical uh, aspects covered as well as the radiation therapy. There uh, one one radiation therapist that has pretty much limited her practice to uh, uh, the treatment of female pelvic cancer. So, uh, yes, we've got a, a nice team here and actually uh, are now anxiously awaiting the uh, building and opening of a, of a new cancer center, which uh, is having this groundbreaking uh, a little a little more than a year from now with uh, anticipated completion in probably 2017. Um, it'll be uh, the, certainly the largest uh, single uh, cancer center uh, in the uh, greater Washington, Baltimore area, uh, other than uh, uh, perhaps the clinical center in IH and, uh, wow. and, and perhaps Hopkins. Yeah, Great. Uh, Amazing. And I understand that uh, to make an appointment uh, with you at your, uh, I believe, office in Annandale, is that right. where you are? The That's uh, correct. phone number is 703 nine seven zero six five four five that's correct and we'll post uh, bill's uh, contact information on my only my wellness website where you also can uh, listen to our other uh, previous as well as upcoming podcasts the website for those who are interested is only my wellness o-l-n-e-y-m-y-w-e-l-l-n-e-s-s.com and again this is dr ed taubman uh, podcasting from only Maryland. If you have any uh, questions, feel free to email me at cancergenedoc, C-A-N-C-E-R-G-E-N-E-D-O-C, at only, O-L-N-E-Y, medical.com. We look forward to our next podcast. Uh, we're going to be having Rick Weisinger uh, speaking about the nutritional aspects of health and illness uh, and its management. And I'm also looking forward to an interview with my good friend, oncologist Dr. Ken Miller, who will be speaking about life after cancer. Ken has uh, previously set up the survivorship uh, programs at Yale and Harvard and is now practicing locally at Mount Sinai Hospital in uh, Baltimore. So again, thanks for joining us and look forward to catching you the next time. Take care.